United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two It will be very difficult, not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have a fascinating show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back. And I want to start by addressing some recent climate news this week. As all of you most likely heard, Arctic temperatures in the small Siberian town of Verhyonsk spiked to a reported 100.4 degrees F or 38 degrees C this last Saturday. While we heard from quite a few of you on this, it remains the policy of the show to only provide facts from peer-reviewed scientific research papers. That said, there was a long discussion on how to connect it as it is still very important news, yet because of the recency of it, there are obviously not published papers on it as of yet. There are, however, a litany of papers on climate change in the Arctic, so that is where we'll focus this week. However, in order to paint a complete picture, we will be looking at five papers this week instead of our usual one. And while this will prevent us from diving too deep into each one in our time today, as always, links to all of them are live on southof2degrees.org if you want to read them in more detail. With that, we'll be looking at three major areas. First, polar amplification. Second, ice and ocean dynamics. And thirdly, ramifications and fallout from the alarming trends and the rapid rate of change we're seeing in the Arctic temperatures. Before we dive too deep, let's go back and revisit two of our earlier shows. First up, part one of Climate Change 101 in week two. In it, we discussed the difference in weather, climate, and climate change. For those who weren't with us, imagine the three as follows. Weather is the observable conditions for any given day. So let's think of weather like the clothes you choose for any particular day for where you live. Climate, on the other hand, is all the clothes in your closet as they define what it's like to live year over year in any given spot. Climate change, then, in this analogy, is the difference in your wardrobe over time. So while what was reported in the Arctic on Saturday was a great example of weather, today we're going to be addressing climate change for that same region. Make sense? The second topic we need to revisit, we discussed during week three in the second part of Climate Change 101, and that is polar amplification. Think of it like the second law of thermodynamics, where things always flow from hot to cold, thus transporting heat via atmospheric or large ocean currents towards the poles. As a result of those currents, the poles heat more through solar radiation than a simple planetary equilibrium calculation would predict. Further, there are a lot of other forces at play, such as the reflectivity of sea ice versus the ocean surface, the increase in humidity, both from equatorial transport, as well as the lack of a mechanical barrier provided by the ice, which, as we have also discussed, just a small increase in temperature can cause a large increase in water vapor that has a significant radiative forcing, especially in localized areas. All of this culminates in the Arctic having warmed two to three times that of the global average. 
Now, the five papers we're combining for our picture today are one, Arctic amplification under global warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees C in the NOR ESM1, HAPPY, published 23 September 2019. Second, Seasonal and Regional Manifestation of Arctic Sea Ice Loss, published 14th of March 2018. Third, Sea Ice Loss Amplifies Summertime Decadal CO2 Increase in the Western Arctic Ocean, published on 15th of June of this year. Fourth, Decreased Motility of Flagellated Microalgae, Long-Term Acclimated to CO2-Induced Acidification Waters, published 1st of June of this year, and Aquatic Behavior of Polar Bears in an Increasingly Ice-Free Arctic, published on the 26th of June, 2018. With our first section today, let's start with the paper Arctic Amplification Under Global Warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees C in the NOR ESM1 HAPPY to get a strong knowledge base before we dive into some of the more unique aspects in our second section. Now, this paper is probably the most extensive and well-put-together study I've read in a very long time, and if you're up for 30 or so pages of scientific jargon, I recommend you read it. If that's not for you, fear not, I'm here for you. First, know that the NOR ESM1 is the Norwegian Earth Science Model and is one of the main climate models used in many research studies. HAPPY, or H-A-P-P-I, on the other hand, stands for Half a Degree of Additional Warming, Prognosis, and Projected Impacts, and is a collaboration of 44 scientific institutions to generate new scenarios to quantify the relative risks associated with 1.5 degrees C and 2 degrees C of warming, focusing on extreme weather and the relative risks of low-probability extreme weather events, such as what we saw happen on Saturday. Now, the amount of detail this study went into was mind-numbingly fascinating as it focused on the Northern Hemisphere climate response to global warming and, of course, the 1.5 and 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and how the response differs depending on whether the model is run with a fixed sea surface temperature as well as fixed sea ice thickness, as in the HAPPY model, or with active ocean and sea ice models, which obviously complicates things a bit, but also opens up for some potential sources of errors. Within the scope, they ran a triple model simulation with 125-point annual data sets, each over a 10-year period, creating an output study covering 3,750 years. And then they distilled that into understandable takeaways. Oh, so after hearing that, you just want the summary? Okay, fine. Here goes. One of the most interesting points it found was the delay in returning to pre-industrial levels, even with aggressive mitigation action. Using the reductions under the IPCC scenarios where we hit steady state at either 1.5 or 2 degrees C by 2050 based on CO2 concentrations, it found that there would be a 75-year steady state period from approximately 2095 to 2170 before a decline would occur in the Arctic. In sea temperatures, that would remain at elevated levels well past the year 2200. In other words, even if we act quickly from today, the Arctic climate, forget the Arctic Ocean for a minute, won't return to normal for nearly 150 years. As my kids would say, way to go, Dad. Now, the study also found that storm tracks progressed poleward and increased in intensity as well as the temperature gradient between the equator and the poles weakened. Finally, it found that under present-day conditions, it is close to a 0% chance to see a completely ice-free summer in the Arctic. But at 2 degrees C of warming, you're looking at an 18% chance of that happening, or rather, no sea ice once every six years. 
And while you may be saying, big deal, ice-free doesn't affect me, no, we'll dive into the ramifications of that in the third segment today. But for now, let's move to our second section where we'll look at ice and ocean dynamics. The paper in our second segment today is called Seasonal and Regional Manifestation of Arctic Sea Ice Loss, and it's on our list as it provides a great insight into the dramatic change in the Arctic ice extent since the 1950s. To start, it broke the Arctic into 13 segments through which ice extends to various degrees throughout the year, the first being the Central Arctic or Geographic North Pole, followed by eight surrounding seas, think petals on a flower, and four more regions extending further south. In the interest in time, I won't rattle them all off, except to note that we need to pay special attention to one called the Barents Sea. This sea is above both Norway and Russia, extending from roughly 20 to 60 degrees east longitude. The reason this area is unique? I'll get to that in a minute. Now, I know not having a visual is difficult, so I'm going to attempt to paint a mental picture for you, if you will, to summarize this paper. So close your eyes for a minute. Well, unless you're driving, then absolutely don't do that. But if you're stationary, imagine this with me. For the past seven decades, you assign each decade a color. The 1950s purple, 60s dark blue, 70s light blue, 80s green, 90s yellow, early 2000s orange, and 2010 onward red. Now for each decade, you draw a line in the corresponding color around the top of a globe to show the sea ice extent. In a stable environment, you would have marked the colors almost on top of each other. Unfortunately for us, on the whole, for the picture you just drew, you would see an almost perfect rainbow without overlap, which would serve to show you a consistent and decadal loss of sea ice no matter the month you chose to draw it for. Where it gets fascinating is when you zoom in on your drawing and you see the differences in each of our 13 seas. In the Barents Sea, you would see an interesting phenomenon, namely that where on the whole the color laid flat against one another, in the Barents Sea you would see gaps between your color bands since the 1990s or your yellow stripe, and the gaps would be more significant in March than in September. This serves to show you that here in this region, there is a significant and rapid decline in sea ice extent. Why here? Why is it important? Well, let's take a look. Once again, we need to realize our planet is a unique and dynamic environment. So even within the Arctic, all is not the same. And while the exact mechanism is unclear, the Barents Sea has moved to a completely open water by the end of September and is the only one of our radial seas that touch the Arctic to do so. Further, it is losing its winter sea ice at a greater rate than any of the other 13 regions save for Greenland. To understand why is definitely an area where future study is needed, and while I wish I had the sea temp data along with the equatorial polar temperature gradients we discussed in our first paper today to overlay this, I don't. However, if you're a postdoc looking for a thesis, this might be a great one for you. As for the rest of us, no, I'll keep an eye out if further data becomes available. I'll definitely keep you posted. Now for our third section today, we'll be discussing the fallout and ramifications of a changing Arctic environment. For this bit, we're going to go down a figurative slide with the next three papers, and we'll do this in a series of quick hits, so hold on. As the sea ice in the Arctic melts, several not-so-noticeable changes occur, namely freshened surface water and the development of surface stratification along with altered circulation and enhanced primary production. This furthers the changes in the ocean by decreasing the carbonate mineral saturation and increasing acidification. Quote, while sea ice melt removes the mechanical barrier for the air-sea CO2 exchange, 
Meltwater increases the surface stratification and suppresses nutrients supplied by the upward mixing of subsurface waters, thus potentially limiting the biological drawdown of CO2 in the ocean CO2 uptake, end quote. The dynamics of what this paper found was that with the increase in a freshwater layer and with no physical barrier from the loss of sea ice, atmospheric CO2 could rapidly invade the surface layer such that the CO2 saturation was nearly the same as the atmosphere. Right now, I'm sure you have a quizzical half-smile on your face and you're wanting to say, wait up there, Brian. I thought we wanted to reduce atmospheric CO2 and have it dissolve in the ocean. Well, yes. However, think of it like trying to build a house but using your hand as the hammer. You're moving in the right direction, but you're doing it the wrong way such that you're only hurting yourself before you ever finish. The problem here is that because of the freshwater stratification, the CO2 buildup in the surface water doesn't mix with the lower nutrient-rich layers, which prevents the ocean from acting like a carbon sink like we want it to. This in turn works to acidify the oceans because as CO2 dissolves in the water, it alters the pH. Interestingly enough, a lower pH has significant effects on the motility of microalgae or phytoplankton. As their ability to move both to regulate photosynthesis as well as to avoid predation becomes limited, you're starting to talk about a dramatic shift in the entire ecosystem from phytoplankton to fish to marine mammals and up to our final subject today, apex predators, namely the polar bear. Now, our final paper looked at how the behavior of the polar bears has changed in a world with reduced sea ice. And one of the most fascinating things I found in this paper wasn't actually in the conclusions, rather in the scope. The study focused on only female bears because apparently males have the habit of, quote, not retaining their collars, end quote. This means that even in the polar bear world, you need a female to make a study work smoothly because a male left to his own devices is just going to muck it up. As far as the findings go, bears in this subregion spent a significant amount of time in the water, some swimming across fjords while others swam extensively to reach sea ice. One record indicated a bear swam 92 kilometers over the course of 38 hours with 30 hours of that spent in the water swimming. Further behavioral changes were found in an unexpected amount of diving, with one female diving repeatedly deeper than 8 meters over the course of 36 days and hitting a max depth of 13.9 meters or 45.6 feet. Now, it's estimated that the energy required for a bear to swim is five times that of walking, which means it would need a significantly higher caloric diet to fuel the behavior, yet some bears in this region were observed diving for seaweed, which they ate. It is because of the potential shift in the entire food chain, as well as the physical changes occurring to the environment, that polar bears have been listed as a threatened species based solely on anthropogenic climate change, and also why the fractured sea ice and the majestic polar bear makes up our very own South of Two Degrees logo. While bears in the Barents Sea subregion showed unusual plasticity in adapting to their changing world, the bigger question is, can they keep it up? And if so, for how long? 
So we've established in part one of today's show the significance of the damage we're doing to the Arctic as we rapidly approach 1.5 and 2 degrees C of warming. And in section two, while we are still learning the exact mechanisms, we now understand the severity of the ice loss. Finally, in our third segment, I hope you gained an appreciation for the slippery slope the region is sliding down at an increasingly faster and alarming rate every year. So with that said... Let's do our segment called Summarize It Like I'm Six. And remember, this is the perfect way to describe today's show to either your kids or your elected official that may struggle to understand. So here goes. The planet used to be hot in the middle and cold at the top and bottom. Because of increased bad stuff in the air, the whole planet is getting hotter. But that is happening faster near Santa's house. As a result, ice is disappearing, making the ocean not as healthy for all animals, big and small, forcing them to act different if they want to survive. And even if we change the way we act today, it's going to be a long time before it's back to normal. So Santa, better just save up and buy a houseboat. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you enjoyed it, gained something from it, and I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Until then, stay safe. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.